Hello and welcome to Stuff That Interests Me with me, Dominic Frisby. Digital technology, from artificial intelligence to blockchain, from robotics to virtual reality, is transforming the way we live. Those who control the most powerful technologies are increasingly becoming the most powerful. And as time goes on, these powerful entities, usually big tech firms and also the state, will set the limits of our liberty, decreeing what may be done and what is forbidden. Their algorithms will determine vital questions of social justice, and in their hands, democracy will flourish or decay. With me to discuss this increasingly important and interesting subject is Jamie Suskind. He's an author, a speaker and a barrister. He's a past fellow of Harvard University's Berkman Klein Centre for Internet and Society. And he studied history and politics at Magdalen College, Oxford. And he's the author of a new book on this very subject, Future Politics. So, Jamie, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much for doing this interview. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. I mean, let's kick off. When, as I started reading your book, I was just like, oh my God, he's right. Oh my God, oh yeah, oh no. And, and all the sort of, everything sort of seemed to fall into place. So why don't we start by describing kind of where technology is now? And, and, and then we will go to where it's going. Absolutely. So I project three major trends based on what we're currently seeing. The first is increasingly capable systems. These are non-human systems, computational systems, that can do tasks which we previously thought they'd never be able to do, and they can do them as well as us or even better. And so AI systems can already beat us at every game we've ever ever developed, whether it's chess or the exponentially more complex game of Go. But they can also do things which you wouldn't necessarily expect of an artificial intelligence system. They can tell the difference between a real smile and a fake smile better than us. They can, limit, they can mimic human speech or lip read uh, as well as we can. They can translate languages with fewer errors than human translators. They can tell the difference between a freckle and a melanoma better than the best human doctors, like for, likewise with lung cancers. They can predict our lifespan if we have coronary heart disease or cancer better than the best human experts. And in some respects, they can predict the outcome of litigation better than lawyers can as well. And we're really just at the beginning. I mean, it's anticipated that we'll have self-driving cars and the like in the next few years, and we can talk about that more if you like. But I think it's important to remember that artificial intelligence systems of this kind are extremely young. And in the grand sweep of human history, they've been with us for just a few seconds. And so it's mind-boggling to think of how they might improve in the future, particularly if uh, computer processing power continues to grow at an exponential rate, as it has done Uh, since the middle of the last century, if not longer. So that's the first major trend, increasingly capable systems. The second is what I call increasingly integrated technology. This is the idea that, as one professor put it, in the 1980s, the computer was a room that you walked into and you would program it using a screwdriver. (laughs) For you and I, the principal interface with technology in our lifetimes has been the keyboard, the mouse and the screen. And we now live in the age of what David Rose calls the glass slab, where our main interface with technology is the iPhones and the iPads that we have in our pockets. But it would be wrong to suppose that that is where technology is headed. What's said instead is that by 2020, which isn't long from now, there'll be up to 50 billion devices 
connected to the internet, uh, endowed with sensors and processing power and the kinds of capabilities I described a moment ago. So that's technology that's in our objects and appliances and our utilities and our architecture, in both our public and private spaces, including on our bodies and sometimes inside them. And so in the future, technology won't just be confined to discrete artifacts, it will be all around us. And the distinction between online and offline and real space and cyberspace and real and virtual for that matter will become less meaningful. Third, third big change that I talk about is what I call increasingly quantified society. This is the idea that every two hours now it's said that we generate as much data as we did from the dawn of civilization until 2003. And what that means is that more and more of our lives who we associate with, what we buy, where we go, what we say and what we think and what we like and dislike. These things are increasingly caught and captured as data and recorded in permanent or semi-permanent form. Now, for most of human history, human lives and the majority of what took place in them were largely forgotten. And that goes for including after the invention of writing, uh, even as it does before, but in the future, the opposite will be the case. Increasingly, everything will be caught and captured as data. And it's said that by 2020, again, there'll be three million books worth of data for every human being on the planet. Uh, and uh, that's a very different world from the one that we've known in the past. I'm, I'm lost for words, Jamie, because it just when you start thinking about all this, all this kind of thing, you just your mind is blown. Um, the first question I guess I have for you, where do you stand on future employment? Are you one of these guys that thinks robots is going to create jobs as it sort of did, as machines sort of did in the Industrial Revolution? Or are you one of these people that thinks we've got a, we're heading for a, you know, a huge blue and white collar workforce that is going to have no work? I fall more into the latter category. I should declare an interest here, which is that my brother, Daniel Susskind, who's an economist, and my dad, Richard Susskind, who writes about the future of the legal profession and the professions generally, are, to my mind, the world-leading experts on this subject. And so to a certain extent, my thinking has been shaped by them. But the thinking can be stated relatively straightforwardly. If you consider that the work that we do is just bundles of tasks, over time machines are becoming more capable of performing those tasks and in due course it will become more economically efficient for more and more of those tasks to be done by machines or by non-human systems done by us and in those circumstances you can expect corporations to take the most um, profitable option. Now I do agree that technology creates jobs as indeed it has done throughout history but the relevant question is not whether technology creates jobs, but whether in turn those jobs would be better done by machines as well than by mm. human beings. So the creation of jobs by technology is only relevant if those jobs themselves go to humans. And if your overall thesis is that there's more and more that machines can do, while our capabilities are roughly staying the same, uh, then over time there's likely to be a large... Um, a large-scale movement of human employment to human unemployment. And the point I'd make here is that you don't need 100% or even 80 or 50% unemployment for that to be a fairly radical change to the way that our economy is structured. 
if even there were 10% or 20% or 30% unemployment as a result of uh, technology, and that unemployment was relatively systemic and relatively stable, that would mark a pretty major departure from the model of capitalism that we've been accustomed to uh, in the last 100 years or so, or, or perhaps longer. And so it would require policy responses that were, to my mind, quite radical and quite different from what we have today. Yeah, I mean, when you have that kind of economic upheaval, usually you end up with a revolution or a war of some kind. And, you know, if you look at what's going on in the world, increasing political discontent and everything else, you know, a lot of people would say we are heading towards something like that. Is that, is that a world you envision? Vision or? Well, I'm not necessarily sure that I would... Um and I'm not sure this is what you were doing either, say that the difficulties and unrest that we have in the world just now are connected necessarily with um, technological unemployment, although in some places they, they are connected with unemployment, of which technology is obviously a part. But the broader point to make about... I was sort of imagining the two rivers meeting. Well, quite. Uh, the point I'd make is this. The, the, and again, this is a point that Daniel Suskin talks about in, in his new book. The, the fact that there's there might be large-scale unemployment doesn't mean that the overall amount of assets in society, the pie, as it were, has shrunk. On the contrary, businesses and those who still make money will be growing at an increasing rate. And so there will be prosperity in society, but the question will be one of how it is distributed. So there is a potential world in which people are unemployed, but they still live better lives than they do today. Because through a system of redistribution or something like it, we have um, cut the link between work and income and we find other ways to give us the things that work sometimes gives us, like status in society or a sense of self-esteem and psychological well-being. So th there, is a, there is an outcome uh, which requires quite different political thinking from today's in which we all benefit from increasingly capable systems and the economic miracles they can bring. But if we live in a world where the benefits of technology, the commercial benefits, flow only to an increasingly small, increasingly narrow slice of society, then I would be unsurprised if it led to widespread social unhappiness. Can a machine be a judge better than a judge? I'm, I'm asking you this because we're sat in your barrister and we're sat in your cham legal chambers recording this interview. So that's why the questions occur to me. Right now, no. There's obviously interesting ways in which technology can be used to accelerate and streamline the legal process. And not all claims require a judge, as we would typically think about it. So eBay resolves more disputes online every year than the entire US justice system. But the answer to your question just now is, no, artificial intelligence is not yet at the stage where a judge can weigh a case made in natural language and decide one way or the other. Okay. Um, we've described what's going on in the world now and these, this increasing capability, increasingly integrated, increasingly quantified. Um, what you talk about in your book is how code can force you to do things. So, for example, at the moment, you know, we 
our actions are determined to a certain degree by the legal code, but also, you know, but they're also determined by our sort of moral and social codes as well. But you you describe a world in which your your actions are determined by what you're able to do on various platforms. Absolutely. So when we use technologies, we are subject to the code that is um, contained within those technologies. Just a very simple example. When Gordon Brown visited Barack Obama in 2009, they exchanged gifts. And one of the gifts that uh, the president gave the prime minister was 25 American DVDs. And when uh, Mr. Brown tried to play the DVDs, when he got back to number 10, they wouldn't play because they had been coded into them, there had been coded into them a restriction on their use to the geographical territory of the United States and the DVD players within that territory. It's called digital rights management technology. It's the same idea underpinning the technology that means you can't cut and paste uh, over and over again a song that you download on iTunes. We... And when you take your first drive in a self-driving car and you ask it to go over the speed limit and it refuses, and you ask it to park illegally for a moment and it refuses, you come up against uh, the constraints of code, even if you would have done something different in that situation if you'd still been in charge of the vehicle. Larry Lessig describes this as the difference between a world of doors which contain signs saying do not enter and a world of locked doors. Increasingly, as we live our lives through technologies, how we live our lives will be shaped by the code contained within those technologies. And that means that on a social media platform, if you wish to participate in a political debate, whether you are allowed to be a member of that platform, the terms on which you're a member of that platform, the mode of speech which you can exercise on that platform, say no no more than 280 characters, all of that is determined by the code. I mean, of course, it's, it's ultimately owned and controlled by human operators, But those operators may not be the state. They may be private bodies. And so my thesis, my argument, is that increasingly we're the subject of rules written by um, people over whom we have very little oversight and control. And again, if you just think about a world in which technology surrounds us the whole time, you'll see that the consequences for our freedom could actually be quite profound. I mean, you can't dodge a bus fare in a world where your smart wallet deducts that fare automatically when you get on the bus. You can't stream an episode of Game of Thrones illegally if the digital rights management technology is so strong that only the best hackers can break through it. You can't pay someone cash in hand in a cashless economy. And uh, increasingly we'll have our lives regulated by biometrics as well, which means that you can't take more than one helping of Diet Coke in a, in a restaurant self-service counter if it's distributed using face recognition technology. And if you go to the Temple of Heaven Park in Beijing today, you'll find that your use of toilet paper is regulated by that technology. But it wouldn't surprise me if governments and companies made use of that technology in the future in order to enforce their rules, irrespective of whether those rules are also the law of the land. You talk about code being the language of the future in the same way that the written word was you know, essential to anyone who wanted to be successful post-whatever, 1400 or whatever. You know, code is the language of the future. It's mostly private bodies, private companies that have mastered code. 
and then a government will employ a private company to build a code around a certain system. How much... I, I'm, I'm sort of one. I mean, it's the coders are going to write our laws, is what I'm, what I'm, what I'm suggesting. And even um, if the government tells the coder write the code like this, if the coder wants to code it slightly differently, he can. Well, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot to break down there. There is first there of is. all, there's, there's first of all, the point that um, increasingly rules in the future will be written in code and we'll have to follow them whether we like that or not. Not all, some code will contain or embody the law. So if your self-driving car doesn't drive over 70 miles an hour in this country, then you'll see that what the manufacturer has done there is coded the law into the device itself. But the manufacturer may also choose to restrict your car to 60 miles an hour because that means lower insurance premiums uh, for that manufacturer. And then there you can see that the rules set by the coder and the rules mm. set by the law diverge from one another. And in a sense, we live in this new world where those who, those private bodies who write the code do in a sense have a great deal of power to affect the way that we live our lives. And that's just obviously one very small example. The interplay between private firms and the state I think is going to be an interesting one in the next 20 or 30 years I think it will be a source of major political debate I I wouldn't necessarily say that tech firms can ignore the law by coding rules which allow people to do things that are illegal mm -hmm. that, that the law doesn't permit but what they can do and, and I think will do is write code that restricts us more than the law would restrict us because of the preferences of those firms. Let me make that real with an example. Oculus, which is owned by Facebook, came out with a virtual reality platform just a couple of months ago, which promises arena-style experiences. So a lot of VR systems just now have been confined to experiences in areas which feel like room-shaped or slightly or slightly bigger. This promises arena-style virtual reality. And it occurred to me that one of the uses of that technology platform might be to experience what it was like to participate in the D-Day landings. So you put on your virtual reality headset and all of a sudden you're there on the transports, you're unloaded onto the beach, the bullets are around you, you can hear the noise and the thunder and the crash of war and you move towards the French and German positions and so forth. And that usage, I think, would be fairly in line with a lot of video games and how they are currently engineered. And I think most of us would say that's an acceptable use of that technology. There's no reason why we shouldn't be allowed to experience that. But what if you wanted to experience the other side? What if you wanted instead to experience being behind a German or a French gun at the D-Day landings? Should that be permitted? Or what if you wanted to go further and actually experience what it was like to be a Nazi executioner in one of the uh, concentration camps or one of the terrorists who launched the 9-11 bombings? The English law's traditional response to this follows John Stuart Mill's harm principle, 
which is that basically we're allowed to do anything we like unless it causes harm to someone else. So something being merely immoral or merely offensive is not a reason to criminalise it. And for that reason, our thoughts are never criminalised. So you can imagine these things in your head, being an executioner or being a, a terrorist. And there's nothing illegal about that. Likewise, there's nothing illegal about imagining having sex with an underage child because it doesn't cause harm to anyone under the harm principle. To my mind, the same argument might apply to virtual reality systems. So there's no inherent reason, uh, according to the way that the law is currently arranged, why you wouldn't be able to experience these deeply immoral and distasteful things on your virtual reality system. That's what the law allows, or might allow. But I suspect that what the tech firm will do is restrict those experiences. And it will say that its company policy or its company values, however they're defined, prohibit the use of their systems for those purposes. And I find that politically interesting because in the past, the limits of your freedom and where you test the limits of your freedom is at the extremes in the circumstances of the kind I've just described. The limits of your freedom in the past were set by the law and by social norms. But in this example, and in I think many others, the limits of your freedom will be decided by the corporate policy of technology firms. And that too is a form of power that is new and strange and interesting. Um, where tech will, power will grow is if, for example, you have the police force and the, the, the power of the police is strong because they're given power by government to implement the laws. Um, where tech will grow is it is given the power to implement the code on behalf of government, I would say. Let's, let's talk about scrutiny. This is another big theme, how we are constantly scrutinised. I say it like that because um, I don't know if you've ever listened to the beginning of the War of the Worlds. Um, yes. And you, so you've got Richard Burton in that fantastic voice talking about Martians scrutinising uh, humans. So that's why I said it like that. But let's talk about scrutiny. Constant, intimate, never-ending scrutiny. It's, it would surprise me if the fact that data has gathered about us in unprecedented levels didn't in some way affect the way that we behave. And I first of all note that it's interesting that our best references for this sort of thing are works of fiction from the early 20th century, Orwell, Huxley, Wells, uh, than they are political or philosophical works from the 21st century. I think there's a poverty of such works, which is why I wrote the book in the first place. I think our terminology needs to move on, but that currently that's the best that we've got points of reference that is and what I'd say about scrutiny is twofold firstly the more you know about someone the easier it is to influence them or even manipulate them and that's the basis of almost all online advertising data is gathered about us from various parts of our lives it is brought together in one place it is sold to commercial entities who use that data to target us with advertisements based on what's their algorithms and what their data tell them that we would be most interested in. And of course what that means is that the adverts that you see might be different from the adverts that I see. That's obviously a new form of advertising that has been enabled in this century. It's increasingly the way that politics works as well, and political advertising, because 
you know, it said that Donald Trump's campaign in the 2016 presidential election had 5,000 data points for 200 million separate people in America. And what that meant was that adverts on Facebook and the like could be targeted at those hundreds of millions of people in a way that was incredibly well engineered to the tastes and preferences of the individual recipient. And that's why you have, it is said, large-scale changing of people's minds in a way that political adverts and propaganda in the past will have struggled to do. So the first thing that scrutiny enables is for us to be influenced and manipulated in new and unique ways. And there's a kind of constant cycle of data being gathered about us and feedback in the form of our behaviour, which is in turn watched and contributes to the cycle. And so, in, in a sense, we are always being watched and we are always being influenced. I should say, by the way, that the legal regime we have here with the GDPR in Europe is more stringent than what they have in America, which is essentially nothing. And that means that the rules on data flow in the United States are much freer than they are here. And so the points they're making, I think, are more relevant to the US than they are for here, although they do still apply. The second thing I'd say about scrutiny is that even when others aren't actively trying to influence or manipulate us, just knowing that we're being watched in due course, I think, will change our behaviour. Just to give you one example, the... There was a, a case in the United States not so long ago where a husband was accused of murdering his wife and his defence was that actually there had been a home invasion and the two of them had been tied down by the burglars and in the course of being tied down and that home invasion, the wife had been murdered by the intruders. The difficulty with his defence was that his wife had been wearing a Fitbit at the time of her death and what the data from the Fitbit recorded was that actually at that time she was not immobile but was in fact moving around the house rapidly and her heart rate was up. Both pieces of evidence consistent with someone who's running away rather than someone who's tied down. He was convicted of her murder because his story was inconsistent with the data from the time. Now, I think he was caught out because we're not yet used to living in a world where our, even our private conduct without us knowing or realising, is being increasingly caught and tracked and can be used against us by law enforcement. And there are similar cases where people are trying to... Law enforcement agencies are trying to mine the contents of Amazon Echo systems, see if they overheard crimes. Um, oh, my God. More anecdotally, uh, I was told on my book tour last month of a, a couple who broke up because one of their... Because they shared a pair of smart scales... And smart scales send to your iPhone details of your body mass index and your weight when you stand on them so you can keep a log. And this woman received an update to her iPhone even though she was not standing on the scales. And the update that she received was not consistent with the weight and body mass index of her boyfriend, but rather of another woman. And that was how the relationship ended. I don't think we'll be caught out as much like that in the future because I think we're all likely to police our behaviour yeah. more. To do, we're less likely to do things that are sinful or shameful or wrong. So, you know, if you think 
if you if you're planning to drive your car to somewhere where you wouldn't want your spouse to find out find out about it you're less likely to do that if the the next day when that car is switched on it displays a log of the previous day's journeys so as more and more information is gathered about us i say we are likely to change our behavior even when people aren't overtly trying to influence or manipulate us yeah i have to tell um friends who will send me hilarious but inappropriate videos and pictures and stuff please don't send me hilarious and inappropriate pictures because my kids read my phone all the time and it just is not appropriate (laughs) scrutiny is quite interesting because we notice it with the online review system for example which is in my opinion has brought about a sort of wholesale improvement in conduct because the restaurateur will give you a better service because he knows that you're going to review him for TripAdvisor or you might give him a bad review if he gives you a bad service and so he behaves himself better. The Uber driver gives you a better service and you behave yourself better in the Uber because both of you want to get good feedback from the other. So in that sense, it brings about an improvement of conduct and that review, that rating will be permanent. That is your online reputation. But at the same time, it's sort of... Like if you do what would be described as risk-taking conduct, and you sort of do need to take risks if you're to progress and know your limits and all this kind of thing, but if you do risk-taking conduct, your online reputation will be harmed, you will be downgraded. It sort of breeds conformism. I agree on all fronts. I mean, what I would say is this. Human beings have always thought about each other and gossiped about each other. We've always as communities come up with ways informally of ranking and sorting each other. Reputation. And now we have digital reputation systems which can codify that communal sense into something much more concrete. And the examples of Uber and Airbnb are good ones, although they haven't yet spread to the rest of society. What they're doing in China, I think, is a good example of of what that looks like which is a social credit system based on scores afforded to you for a whole host of personal characteristics like hygiene and punctuality, law-abiding behaviour, whether you jaywalk and the like. And so people in China, it said, are going to have a holistic score of their behaviour and that score will be used to determine their access to things of value in both the public and private sector. I personally find it a slightly creepy concept And I think we also have to frankly acknowledge that these reputation systems are often the vehicles for reproducing injustices and prejudices that already exist in the world. So African-American users of Airbnb are 16% less likely to be accepted as guests in people's homes. And... That's not because they're 16% more likely to behave badly. It's because people are prejudiced against people with African-American names. Likewise, there's research to suggest that Uber ratings uh, are affected by the racial identity of the driver. So these aren't problems that can't be rectified, but we have to be aware of them, that actually these systems aren't always as neutral as they profess to be. And even where they are neutral, what you might really want is a system which counteracts racism rather than replicates it Um, and the broader point about us being scrutinized and us being rated as part of that 
as you say, is that it, it probably does breed conformity, and, it's, and it might not be a bad thing that we all try to be a bit more law-abiding. But there's something to be said for a world in which we have the freedom to choose between right, right and wrong. And if you combine a world in which code increasingly makes decisions for us in the way that we described earlier, and scrutiny encourages us through fear of exposure or humiliation or censure to refrain from doing bad things. You live in a world where increasingly, as Roger Brownswood puts it, the choices you make are about what is possible rather than what is morally right or morally desirable. And I think over the course of a generation or two, that could seriously affect the cultivation of human ethics and human morality. It was Aristotle who said that you learn to become an ethical person by doing ethical things and doing them for the right reason. And I wonder if our kids will live in a world where those choices are always as obvious. Let's talk about prediction and the power of machines to make predictions about you and the increasing accuracy of those predictions. The more machines more information that machines have we're in a sort of spiral uh, it's i wouldn't call it necessarily a virtuous spiral but the the incredible ability of machines to make predictions it, wasn't there a statistic in your book that said a, a machine can predict by your face with 90 percent accuracy whether you're not you'll be a criminal well or, that's a claim that's been made by a particular company um it's been seriously doubted in the literature but but even uh, respected and respectable practitioners of crime use <laughs> I have to start that again that's a claim that has been made and it's currently still being tested both academically and commercially but short of that rather wild claim respected and respectable people within the legal system particularly in the United States already use predictive technologies to help them do their jobs so the courts for instance make predictions about they use algorithms to make predictions about your likelihood of reoffending, and on the basis of those predictions they can legitimately extend or shorten a sentence police use predictive policing me mechanisms which indicate to them where geographically crimes are likeliest to be committed who is likely to be committing them and alternatively who is likely to be a victim of them and they direct and allocate resources based on that. So prediction is already a fairly big part of law enforcement, um, even before we start bringing technology into it. But technology is supercharging it, and short of intervention, I think you can see expect to see it being used more. Given the prediction is that you are going to do this crime, could you, what about, you know, what are, what are they... Um, what was the thing they described when he went to Iraq? The 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 preemptive, preemptive enforcement of law. So you're, it is predicted that you will predict this crime with ninety percent probability. Uh, I know by your face that you're going to be a murderer. Mm. So I'm going to put you in prison before you commit the murder. We're not we're not at that stage, and I hope that we never will be because it's just not accurate enough. And. It goes against all of the tenets of, of criminal law that we've established over centuries that you're innocent. Okay, so I don't guilty. need to worry about that. I don't think you do, but I, I do think you need to worry about other stuff, unfortunately, which is that... 
you know, the it's it's 90% like you're going to have a heart attack, therefore this health insurance company is not going to give you health well, insurance. Well, I, mean, I mean, that sort of stuff is definitely taking place, and we can come back to that if you like, but sticking with crime for a moment, yeah. the predictions about reoffending, for instance, there are, there are serious problems of bias which need to be nailed down because, you know, one of the things that a machine learning system might decide is that if you're from a particular area, a particular community, then for whatever reason, based on that community's characteristics, you might be more likely to commit a crime, even if you personally, as an individual, would never dream of it. And that might be considered to be an unfair basis for extending your sentence, particularly if the neighbourhood in question belongs predominantly to people of a certain ethnicity or people of a certain socioeconomic class. What's more, the machines often determine things that are correct, but which we wouldn't necessarily want to be incorporated into public policy. So one question that a, a machine might ask about your proclivity for reoffending is, do you associate with other people who the machine knows to have committed crimes? And that is a good determinant of whether you yourself are likely to commit crimes. But of course... It might well be that someone in your family committed a crime, has nothing to do with you, mm -hmm. and you associate with them because they're your brother or sister, or because you're trying to help them back onto the straight and narrow. But that system would score that adversely against you, and that's arguably unfair. So we have to keep a very close eye on how these systems function and the variables and the weighting of those variables. Understood. Let's talk about it in prediction in, in, in other areas, non-crime areas. So increasingly, at least in the United States, predictive algorithms are used to determine whether and on what terms people get health insurance, whether and on what terms people get uh, mortgages or loans, and indeed whether and on what terms people get jobs. 72% of CVs are never read by human beings. They are instead scanned by algorithms as a kind of first sift to determine who should be put to the top of the pile and who should be put to the bottom. And that can be very efficient and it can be very just, but there can also be problems with that. As we saw just a couple of weeks ago with the recruitment algorithm that was used by Amazon for several years. So what this, this algorithm tried to do was predict your likelihood of being a successful Amazon employee based on your CV. And the way it came up with such predictions was that Amazon had fed it with data from the previous 10 years showing it its employees and its successful employees and showing it its CVs, the CVs of those people. And so the system had to come up with links between the two. But for reasons which were not good reasons, that uh, workplace culture in Amazon had been predominantly male. That's just a historical legacy. Mm -hmm. And so what the machine determined was that actually the strongest indicator of success at Amazon was that you were a man. And so if your CV contained the words women's volleyball team, as opposed to just the words volleyball team, it would go to the bottom of the pile. And it would also go to the bottom of the pile if it contained the name of an all-women's college. So you've got to keep an eye on those systems as well. But as I say, they are widely, widely in use, often by companies significantly less sophisticated than Amazon. Um, Jamie, we're going to wrap this interview up now. I want to sort of talk about where as we wrap it up when I say wrap it up you know five more minutes or something where this all goes where politics is going where tech is going 
where society's going? How does this how does this all end? Well, my big argument is, and my call to action is that the digital is political. That we're now moving into a world where power, democracy, freedom, and justice are all matters that are increasingly determined by technology. And whereas the argument, the great argument of the last century, was where the line should be drawn between the market and the state. That, of course, was the debate that divided the Western Hemisphere from the Eastern Hemisphere and left from right within those countries. The great argument for our generation is to what extent should our lives be governed by powerful digital systems and on what terms. And really, I have three messages to three different groups. The first is to politicians. To my mind, you cannot aspire to govern a country now if you don't understand the technologies that are transforming politics. And so not understanding those technologies should be seen as a barrier to public office in the same way that a lack of understanding of basic economics would be, or basic law or social policy. We need politicians who are literate in this stuff. You don't need to be a computer scientist, but you do need to know the basics. On the flip side, I think there's an enormous amount of responsibility on those who work in tech firms. And as I put it in the book, whether they know it or not, and indeed whether they like it or not, software engineers are increasingly social engineers. And we cannot have in the 21st century computer science and engineering degrees where the ethics module is one that is voluntary and taken in the third year of your degree. It should suffuse the study of software engineering in the same way that ethics suffuses the study of medicine and law, and unleashing these folks on the world uh, without such training, to me, is unsustainable. Likewise, we need a more diverse tech environment. Nine out of ten Silicon Valley executives are men. Uh, A very small proportion, an unrepresentative proportion, are African-American. And many of them hold political views that are way outside the mainstream. And so I think if if digital technologists really are reinventing the world, they need to be diverse and they need to be educated in the humanities and the morals as well. And the final group that my book is aimed at and my work is aimed at is citizens. We, you and I, can no longer afford to treat technology just as consumers but rather as citizens we have to hold powerful technology companies to account both informally and formally perhaps through regulation in a way that recognizes the extraordinary power that they now have in society but we also need a wholesale change in our mental attitudes the analogy of climate change is perhaps a helpful one you know 25 years ago if we'd had a new technology developed for for intercontinental transport, you know, a new type of Concorde, I think all of us would simply immediately have asked, you know, when can I take a ride on it? How much will it cost? Can I use it the next time I go to America? But nowadays, at least a a large amount of us would ask what the carbon footprints of that technology would be. And we consider perhaps whether there might be more environmentally sound ways of achieving the same thing. And that's the result of a generation of activism and mental change caused by people who have been banging the drum on the issue of climate change. I would like the same for technology, 
so that in the future when a new technology comes out we don't just ask where can I get it how much does it cost but rather what are the consequences of this technology for the way that we live together and are those consequences desirable which search engine do you use I use Google do you delete your history well I don't sign into Google I don't have a Google account so my uh, searches are anonymized yes to a certain certain extent yeah yes my Yes, to a certain extent. If someone was very interested in my searches, no doubt they'd be able to find them. But I am one of the individuals who contributes to the 60,000 searches a second that Google receives. Anonymous searches. As anonymous as you can be. Um, I see a world in which international um, tech companies, tech companies that you know, without borders, if you like. There's no borders on the internet in the same way there is in the real world. Are increasingly going to supply government services to a higher standard than governments. So, for example, you know, driverless cars are going to replace public transport systems. Um, uh, 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 The internet is replacing, you know, what you can learn from the internet uh, compared to what you learn at school you know, brings into question state education systems. Why do we even need state education systems in their current form when everything you need to learn at school you can learn online? Pretty much. It's not that simple, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, even in healthcare, tech is now solving the problem of healthcare. And, you know, there's all, particularly using data monitoring and, you know, finding predictive things and preemptive treatment. You know, if you do this, I know from your heartbeat that it's likely you're going to have this kind of heart condition, therefore you need to start changing your, you know, capture the disease. It's easier to prevent the disease or the illness than it is to treat it. So you'll just see this increasing role where tech replaces government. Surely this is going to have some kind of impact on the nation states themselves. Well, without delving into those particular examples, I think in the future there will certainly be new questions about how public services can be delivered. I mean, today we ask, in respect of any public good, or indeed any private good, is this a good best delivered by the state or best delivered by the private sector? And I think in the future there will be an additional fork, which will be, is this best delivered by traditional human means or can it be best administered by technological means and I think that these are ideological questions on which different countries will disagree so you know in the United States just now there's already a much higher preponderance of private sector solutions to public problems and I would also say a higher proportion of tech solutions so that algorithms play a much more distributive role in the United States than they do here in Europe and I think that reflects a ideological bias probably a latent one but an ideological bias nonetheless so I do think in the future the question of the role of tech together with the role of the private versus public sector will be meshed into one. I disagree that it will cause overall the weakening of the nation state. And the reason I think that is this. The nation state has showed itself very capable and willing to adopt the technologies of power for its own ends. And that can be done by doing what I call the full China, which is basically blurring the distinction between public and private, making sure that the Chinese government has basically all of the advantages of the technologies that are developed within its remit. 
uh, within its aegis, whether in the public or the private sector. And at the other end of the scale, you have technology companies which voluntarily help states. So if you type in child pornography to Google, Google will report you to law enforcement authorities without telling you. And so there, the US, the government doesn't have to do the spying on the search engine itself. The search engine does it for it. On other occasions, tech firms resist the state, like they did when Apple didn't give the password to the iPhone of the San Bernardino terrorists. Mm. But eventually, of course, it was seen that the state did something else implicitly, which was to hack that phone, which is why they dropped the legal case against Apple, it's widely assumed. And Edward Snowden says that actually the state has hacked into previous uh, private databases of data as well. Um, there are also circumstances where, you know, in the United States, it's illegal for the state to gather masses of data itself, but it's not illegal for the state to buy it. So there are tech intermediaries who gather data and sell mm -hmm. it to the state. And so you have this spectrum of relationships between the state and the private sector. At the one end, you've got the full China. At the other end, you've got San Bernardino. But I think you can be sure that the, the state is going to try its best to get its mitts on the power and efficiency that technology can deliver, which is why I'm not one of those people who calls wantonly for regulation and nationalization, because I recognize that the state is itself a vast concentration of power, greater, in fact, than any previous entity, political or otherwise, that's ever existed in human affairs. And simply granting the state ownership or control over technologies can lead to supercharging of the state's power in a way that isn't necessarily better than a supercharging of a tech firm's power. So I think we have to strike a balance. But no, perhaps against the grain, I don't think that technology will diminish the importance of the nation state because I think the state will use it to strengthen its own position. Your experience of Silicon Valley, and I'm hearing two reports on this, because you mentioned the sort of dodgy politics of, well, you alluded to the dodgy politics of some people in Silicon Valley at one stage. Is it, is it more libertarian wingnut or is it more liberal snowflake? I would say a few things about Silicon Valley because I, I have the good fortune of going into tech firms and banging the drum about the issues that we've been talking about. You know, in the last month I've spoken at Google and Microsoft and indeed in Stanford University, which has a high degree of connection with the local Silicon Valley environment, I'm not going to make any wild generalizations about people's political views in Silicon Valley. I do think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of um, record, for instance, that 44% of early Bitcoin adopters describe themselves as anarcho-capitalists who were to end the ah, existence of the state. Bitcoin is different. Bitcoin is. is really libertarian. Well, quite, but each technological subculture has its own political subculture, and I think that's fine as long as, A, those, re those people recognise that they are in a subculture, yeah. B, they recognise that the implications of their technologies go beyond that subculture, and C, they have some exposure to and training in the wider liberal arts and social sciences and humanities. My aim is not to solve politics, to make it so that everyone in Silicon Valley holds views that are right or like mine or whatever, but rather to highlight to engineers and the like that their work is inherently political and that when you do inherently political work, it comes with a 
duty, not just to explain yourself, but to be able to justify the choices that you make politically, whether those choices are implicit in the design and coding of your technologies, or whether they're explicit. Yeah. I mean, Bitcoin's an open source piece of software. I was thinking more about organizations like Google and Microsoft and Apple. and those I things. think if you speak to people at Google, you find there's a lot of really well-meaning people there who want to make the world a better place. And well, I was, the, the both the libertarian and the liberal yeah. will both think they're well-meaning. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if I, I don't know if I characterize the the people I've met at Google as libertarian. I I, I think most of them, in all honesty, like most people don't have a particularly pronounced or sophisticated political position one way or the other. They're just, to their minds, a lot of the time, just software engineers, mm -hmm. which is, of course, the problem, because implicit bias yes. of software engineers is always going to be one way or the other. But So you don't think there is a preponderant political view that dominates Silicon Valley? I, I'm not going to say one way or the other, because that's not my area of empirical research. I'm not dodging the question, because I do think... You are a bit. Well, <laughs> I, I am dodging it, but on, the, on, on, I think, the justified basis that I don't know the answer, okay. and, and that my experience has not given me enough confidence to definitively give an answer. What I want to encourage people in Silicon Valley to think is that it, it, it's okay to think politically, as long as you can articulate and justify your politics and be prepared to be challenged if the stuff that you produce is not for the greater good. All right. Well, Jamie Suskin, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. The book is called Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. Oh, my goodness. It is such a huge subject. And, you know, I can tell reading this that you work in the law, that you're a barrister because you've managed to condense everything and get all the arguments and, you know, it's a, it's a huge, this is a, intellectually, this is a tour de force. Thank it you. really is. You know, your brain must be massive. <laughs> <laughs> I hope my mum's listening to this. She'll be very proud. But anyway, uh, the book is called Future Politics and it is published uh, by the Oxford University Press. And if you want to know where the world is going, you should read this book. Jamie Suskin, if people want to follow you or find out more about you, how do they do that? That's kind. My Twitter handle is Jamie Suskin. That's S-U-S-S-K-I-N-D. And that's the best place to go. All right. Jamie Suskin, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Bye.